0: Greetings. I'm Nate Regier, CEO of Next Element Consulting. Next Element specializes in building cultures of compassionate accountability by training, coaching, and advising adaptive communication and positive conflict skills. Welcome to my podcast where I interview inspirational leaders from all walks of life who are practicing compassionate accountability. I'm super excited about today's guest, you may think a football umpire is an unlikely leader and i guarantee you will be inspired by chris's story of leadership in today's conversation i first heard about chris donlan through one of our network trainers who lives in melbourne australia his name is paul larkin a good friend of mine and a fabulous trainer he told me about one of his clients who was a seasoned umpire in the australian football league he told me this guy was using our compassion and accountability strategies on the field with players, during a game, while making calls. I couldn't believe it. So recently, while on a work trip in Melbourne, I had the privilege of attending and watching an AFL game with a special VIP tour set up by Chris himself. I loved the game, and I learned a ton about how Aussie Rules Footy works, including the whole world of officiating. I got to spend time in the umpire's locker room, hear the halftime debrief, and and join the head umpire up in the booth as he coached the field umpires during the game. During dinner one evening with Chris, uh, Chris shared with me some of his stories of using positive conflict strategies in his personal and professional life, and I was riveted. So long story short, he agreed to let me interview him. So without any more delay, welcome from Melbourne, Australia, Chris Donlan.
1: Thank you, Nate. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast.
0: Well, it is great to have you here. I'm so excited for my listeners to be able to hear just a little bit about uh, about what you do and how you're using these skills in your life. Uh, would you share, start by telling us a little bit just about you and your family and, and what you do for a living. Yeah, sure, Nate.
1: Um, so as you, as you have mentioned, I, I do umpire AFL football. Um, that's a part-time job. For me, so during the week I identify myself as an innovation specialist. I live in a base side suburb of Melbourne called Hampton. It's about nine kilometres south of the city. Um, I'm I'm married to Michelle, who's my high school sweetheart. I met her in high school. We've we've been married since our early twenties, and we have two young girls, um, Taylor and Sarah. Taylor should be 17 in November, and Sarah is 13. So. It's not without the challenges, both navigating conflict on the football field and navigating conflict in the house full of three women and two dogs whose names are Will and Kate, their brother and sister. So Will busy and times. Kate. <laughs> Will and Kate. Will and Kate, yes. We call them the, um, the royal puppies.
0: Oh, man. Well, I can certainly relate with having daughters in the household. We, we have our share of opportunities to practice healthy conflict and communication.
1: I, I can certainly empathize with you there. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, there's plenty
0: plenty of opportunity to practice the skills in a yeah. household especially filled with three women. Yes, absolutely. Well, we love them, and I bet we wouldn't have we it are, any uh, other way.
1: I was about to follow up with that
0: because there's a fair chance that my girls will be listening to this podcast.
1: We do love them dearly.
0: Absolutely. Well, Chris, I'm curious, would, would you describe – I learned so much about, about Australian Rules football and about what it's like to be an umpire. Would you share a little bit about the life and work of an AFL umpire and tell us a little about your credentials and how you got into this?
1: Sure, Nate, I'd love to. So uh, AFL umpiring, it's really a lifestyle choice. It's, it's probably a 24-7 vocation, and the choices that I make every day around AFL umpiring – I considered in the context of that and how those choices, you know, may impact or may not impact my performance. So as an example, you know, I've forsaken a lot of potential job opportunities both here in Australia and over abroad and excluded myself from a number of family events um, to, to make sure that, you know, I'm available for umpiring. Um, the work of an umpire is fairly repetitious. Uh, it involves training, uh, preparation. There's obviously game day, which you experienced, there's then recovery, and we also, also review our performance. And we repeat that about 25 times throughout a year. So there's the repetitious part of it. Um, your question around the credentials of an umpire, uh, it, it's quite a long process, uh, and the odds are really stacked against you, really. There's 33 appointed senior field umpires that um, are responsible and charged with the responsibility of taking care of a game on match days and to become an AFL umpire you need to be you need to have uh, elevated yourself through the local levels of umpiring through to what's called the state level so Victoria is a state of Australia so there's a state competition you need to reach the top of that state level Um, at that point there's still no guarantees Um, through each of those I guess stage gates. There's accreditation levels that you need to pass through. Call them tests. Um, some mandatory requirements that you need to pass, and then to make the panel, the AFL panel. Well, firstly, there's got to be a vacant spot. So one of the 33 umpires need to have either retired or been decommissioned, if you like, or, or you know lose their position on on that uh, on the AFL panel. Um, combined with that. Is then obviously, which you've seen, some of the physical testing that we need to undertake because it's quite a physical and fast game and we need to be almost as fit as the players, not quite as fit because we don't take the bumps and tackles as them or execute the skills um, but there is a, a huge element around fitness um, and they've also introduced, which might be of interest to you, a lot of personality testing uh, we have a part-time psychologist that also supports the umpiring group so as I said, you could say that the odds are certainly stacked against you in terms of um, you know, making the AFL panel.
0: Well, I certainly saw the fitness requirement. Um, I think you shared with me about how many kilometres does an umpire run in a game. Sure. So to give a bit of context, the
1: size of the football ground, it's bigger than an NFL ground. The 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 grounds themselves, no no two grounds are exactly the same shape and size. They're all quite different. But generally they're about... Uh, there'd be two football field, NFL football fields in length and maybe one and a half NFL football fields across in an oval shape. And so as you saw, the, the ball scoots around that field quite quickly and umpires need to be where the ball is and where the players are to adjudicate the contest. So we, we could cover anywhere between 13 to 15 kilometres I'm not sure what that is in miles. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's uh, a lot in a game of, in a game of AFL football, and that running is quite ballistic. So there's lots of sharp changes of direction, moving in and out quickly, um, and then obviously you know we've got to you know be at a, at a cognitive level where we can make good decision making, but also communicate effectively.
0: Well, I certainly experienced that, and when I got the chance to spend some time in the locker room with the field umpires, I was amazed at their level of fitness. Uh, these mm. guys don't have a lot of fat on them, I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah. Well, interestingly,
1: interestingly, we do. Um, we have what's called skinfold testing as well, so they measure the, uh, the amount of fat that we, that we actually carry on our body. So wow. it's, it's an element of testing that we, that we're, uh, that we need to, to meet.
0: Well, I could. Uh, I enjoyed visiting with you a lot about just the life and times of an umpire. But today, we're here to talk mm-hmm. about how how you are incorporating positive conflict into the into that work. And uh, mm-hmm. would you start a little bit by sharing how did you learn about compassionate accountability? Where did you get your training?
1: Sure, Nate, love to. So, uh, over the course of my career, I've been exposed to lots of different communication methodologies and frameworks to approach conflict and communication, and what I found with some of those programs was that, which I think is different from compassion accountability, it mostly focused on my needs. Um, and so when I would read the brochure around how these frameworks and methods actually worked, and they didn't quite meet the standards or the things that I was trying to resolve around conflict, I was left, I felt quite short in terms of what they provided for me. But I was exposed to it in in my professional working life at ANZ, where uh, Paul Larkin, the, the network facilitator who you spoke of earlier in the introduction, uh, introduced me to your program called PCM, which is Process Communication Model. And so here I learnt about, you know, and you referenced this in your book, learning to speak you know, the other person's language. Um, and so I was really exposed to LOD through the PCM program um, while working at ANZ. Um, and you know, shortly after um, leaving the bank, which is about 12 months ago, I undertook the, um, the compassion accountability training. Um, and so essentially that's how I got exposed to the LOD.
0: Okay, great. And so you you received your training in, in uh, leading out of drama LOD and the principles of compassion accountability in your, in your other job. And it sounds like you've been using this now in your work as an umpire as well. When you were yeah. getting trained, uh, you mentioned a little bit about how some of the shortcomings of other models and what you were looking for. What, what realizations or epiphanies did you have about yourself and your approach to conflict and communication as a process or as a result of this training?
1: Sure. Look, I guess the first one was really to understand what my role was in conflict, um, and, and part of that was really understanding what my biases, motivations, and where my struggles were uh, and where those tensions existed. So that was really the first thing. Um, the second one was then learning how to decode other people's behaviour and, and responses to that. Um, and I think that it's it's very effective in that around, you know, when I couple the PCM component of um, of the training with the LOD, I think the two go hand in hand really well. So understanding others' behaviours and their motivations, but also understanding my role and being responsible for my own um, behaviours. Um, so that, that was probably... Um, one of, the, one of the key things that, you know, being aware of my own biases and acknowledging my own struggles, tensions, um, and and being vulnerable, I guess. Yeah. Um, absolutely. So one of the second ones, one of the second epiphanies, I guess, was really looking at conflict in a different way and saying that actually conflict is actually okay, providing it's the right type of conflict. Uh, and what I really found was that, um, you know, task conflict versus personality conflict, Were two completely separate things and maybe that's something that you can elaborate a little bit more on. But what I found was we want to actually harness the task conflict because I think that's really good. And, you know, you often reference, you know, conflict's just the gap between where you are to where you want to go and we should be creating new out of conflict. And that resonates really strongly with me, especially in the work I do around innovation, which I'd love to talk to you about a bit later Mm -hmm. if we get a bit of time. And then um, I guess the, the third one was that it's a, Compassion and accountability is a great way for teams, especially innovation teams, to work and, and form new norms. Because when I find when I find that when we practice compassion accountability, uh, you know we can really accelerate the innovation process. And by bringing empathy into a into a team environment, it's a great way to broaden our thoughts and ideas. And I and I realise that the first step around the compassion cycle is to start it open and be empathetic. And that really resonates with me, especially in the innovation process. Mm. So I guess they're the three things that, you know, really struck out to me around compassion and accountability. Understand my role in conflict. Actually understand that and conf, uh, uh, that conflict is okay and mm. we should actually welcome the right type of conflict. And then, you know, it's a great way for teams to, to coexist and work really well.
0: Well, I do want to hear about it and I want to make some, I will make some time to hear about your, your views on how this could benefit innovation. Uh, I'd like to jump to, uh, s- some of our listeners may be wondering, well, what is this compassionate accountability? What are we talking about here? And uh, one thing specifically that I encountered you illustrating and role modeling right away when I met you was uh, utilizing what that we call the formula for compassionate conflict, which is about how we leverage the three skills of openness, resourcefulness, and persistence, and then back to openness as a way to close that gap between what we want and what we're getting. And um, I would love if – I know you shared several stories with me about how you actually deal with conflict between you and players on the field when you're making difficult calls and maybe when those players aren't happy with the call or maybe they're grousing about the call. Uh, Would you you share an example or two about how you would use this formula in an interaction with a player on the field? Sure, sure. Um, uh, There's –
1: There's probably a really good example, and using compassion accountability on the field is is slightly different in terms of what I can how I can apply a uh, compassion accountability in other environments because as I said before the game is quite fast paced so we're quite squeezed um, quite squeezed uh, with with our time. Um, So the example I'd like to maybe share with you is an example that involved a decision where I awarded a free kick against a player in a game and. The free kick that I awarded, I can understand why the player was was quite upset with me. And the reason why the player was quite upset was because he felt that he didn't infringe because another player had caused uh, some, some contact. And as I moved into the uh, moved into the contest and realised that this player was was quite upset, I, um, you know, I, I knew that he naturally become quite aggressive. Um, so what I did was the first thing I, I, I did was I caught myself and I said, well, I'm going to be quite open here. And so, so I met him at open. Yeah, I met him at open. And so rather than just justify my decision, my tone and body language was very important. And so I, I actually, under, you know, tried to understand why he was um, why he was quite, quite aggressive towards that decision. Um, and, and in that in that process, um, what I said to the player, um, what I said to the player was, you know, I understand, you know, why you disagree with the dis- with this decision, but unfortunately, the player has slipped. What do you think? And players aren't normally in the business of seeing umpires or officials ask for their opinion. I, like I said, I dropped my tone, and all of a sudden, he almost took a deep breath, and and that whole the whole tension from the air was pretty much alleviated. And he said, yeah, I guess he slipped. And I said, well, it's important that we protect the player from high contact. Are you OK? He said, yeah, I understand. I'm OK. And just like that, using only a small part of the compassion accountability cycle, I diffused the situation. By meeting the player at open, disclosing what my thoughts and ideas were, and then just validating with him and just saying, are we OK with this? Which I got the appropriate response. Now that's a very cut down, short example of how I've applied a compassion and accountability in a game of football. But I have, you know, many examples through a game where I, I take snippets of it and apply it in a game where it's mm. appropriate.
0: Well, that's that's fascinating, and and it, what you did there is a lot more sophisticated than listeners might might realize. Um, being able to catch yourself. And not seek to justify yourself, but instead get open and disclose your motives, and connect with that player, and say, "Hey, I understand." That's powerful. Um, and then you you certainly exchanged information at resourcefulness, and you were clear about the boundaries. You said we have to protect the safety of the players, and you checked back in with him. How you doing? Mm. Or like mm. we say in New Zealand or in Australia, how you going? Hey, go Hey, going. And um, yeah, yeah, I'm curious when you when you treat players like this, like you said, this is happening very quickly. You're moving. The plays are moving constantly. That's one thing I learned is the play is, just doesn't stop. The contest mm. doesn't stop. Are you are you in dialogue with players frequently during the game outside of just making calls?
1: Yeah, quite often we are. There's, as you saw, there's three umpires or officials on the field. There's usually one umpire who's responsible in control of the game. There's an umpire who's nearest to that umpire who will be also watching and monitoring. Then there's an umpire further away. Mm. As that umpire further away, you might have an opportunity to have a conversation or a dialogue with the player. You might have a little bit more time there, um, and you might be able to, you know, uh, explain a decision or have a, a, a more thoughtful dialogue with the player in, in those times. Yeah. Um, but those times are quite rare.
0: So I, I'm curious. I, I, I'd love to hear more and more examples of just how you talk to players. But if you could summarize what, how has this affected your your the way you do your job? And the way you relate to players on the field uh,
1: the first thing is one being aware of my own behaviors and being accountable for what um, you know what I actually what I actually um, promote and what I actually do on the on the ground so that 's the, the, the first key thing. The second one is it 's actually okay to, to be a little bit vulnerable and show a bit of empathy on the field, even though those players are looking for us to show some leadership and guidance. I believe that vulnerability is a really good way to build some trust so I find that showing the right amount of vulnerability and empathy um, is a really good way to really level the playing field and have an effective dialogue with players. Body language um, and tone is, is certainly very important. Quite often, as I said, they can be very heated in the moment of battle um, they might be very highly caffeinated and and, and very excited very excitable as you, as you would be playing in front of 50 60 thousand fans who are all screaming and encouraging you go and kill some killing an, an opposition player yeah. so um, you know I need yeah. to be very calm in that process wow. um, yeah so <clears throat> part part of the skills that I, I, I really try and implement in the first instance is that part around open and empathy. Mm. And then quite often, if I find that um, a, a, you know I can't quite resonate or get through to a player, it's okay to leave in the right note, and that's to say mm. something around accountability. Well, I don't think I can continue this conversation now. Maybe we can talk about this later. I need mm. to move on. Yeah. Um, so, again, just focusing on what I need to do rather than trying to alleviate or address that, that player's emotional concerns because, you know, they're too heated.
0: Well... You're you're way too humble to tell me this directly, but I heard secondhand that you have you have a great reputation as a very very good umpire, and and players enjoy working with you, and uh, I you also shared a story with me about how these tools were applied to the the there's this team on the field. I realized that there's three teams actually out there, and the team of umpires mm-hmm. is has to work together, and the three field umpires are have to be a really close knit team. You shared a story with me about how you proactively worked. To develop this team before you ever got on the field. Um, would you be willing to share that little story about how you used uh, open, resourceful, persistent, and open to set the tone and get that team tight before you headed out?
1: Sure, sure. So at the start of the year, uh, when we're appointed, we're appointed uh, in, in teams. And the idea is that us three field umpires would umpire together over the course of three or four weeks, depending on form and injury and things like that. Um, and I was appointed to head up as a senior umpire, head up what was, I guess, a more junior team. So I was paired with um, two other quite junior umpires, hadn't really umpired finals before, um, maybe had 50 to 60 games experience, so they're in their second or third year. So... Um, so part of that was around okay so i wanted to make sure that we had the best environment we could to so as a team and as a collective we all did well because one thing i do realize is that if i do well but one of my other colleagues doesn't do so well and the other colleague does well i don't think collectively we do well because no one goes to a sporting event and says Oh gee, umpire number one well, did really well today, but umpire two didn't do so didn't do quite so well. They just identify as as wearing a shirt and we're an umpire and we're we're just one body essentially. So team performance is really important. So prior to prior to the game uh, or, or prior to to starting those that four week period of umpiring together. We sort of got together over about 15 or 20 minutes and we just had a bit of an open conversation. And I and I declared some of that vulnerability up front to the guys to try and let them know that, you know, you know I can be trustworthy. Um, and I wanted, you know, what was important to me was that we all did well out of this and we had fun doing it. And so we thought, I opened with, you know, how, how we might think about communicating with each other on the field. So nothing around what the mechanics of decision-making was, nothing around what the mechanics of our skills were. It was how we would function and form and, and work as a team on the field and how we, would, how we would communicate together. And so what I said to the guys or, or to the other, the other umpires was, for me, hearing feedback from other umpires or validation around my decision decisions isn't really important to me. But if I go back to PCM, I'm a base rebel. I love playful contact. So and what I declared to them is that I really I actually enjoy playful contact. It's it's a way for me to get motivated. If for whatever reason I'm too playful, can you let me know? If that's disrupting your preparation, can you let me know? Because it's important that you know we all set off on the right foot, and that's how I sort of declared my own vulnerabilities up front, and invited them to then share. You know, if if they want to share something or a personal experience or some sort of thing that they've learned over their umpiring career that either helps them inhibits them or whatever that may be, and quickly they opened up very very quickly. And one umpire said, "I really struggle when um, I'm umpiring at a venue and there's not a lot of there's not a big crowd there, and I don't get that affirmation for decision making. I often question myself. So we had a real we had a dialogue around. Well, how can we support you to help you?" you know, um, move through that, that, problem, that problem area. And so we just had an effective conversation around, well, how, what are some of those cues and then how we as uh, supporting umpires can help them through that. Another umpire, another umpire declared that he often questioned himself around his decision-making ability. He, he, he qu- would quite often make a decision which would prove to be correct later on but would, would, would dwell on a particular error. And we said, well, okay, well, what are some of the cues there around that? How can we support you to make sure that, you know, you're thinking about the next decision and not the one that happened? And so we just spoke about some ways in which we could positively reinforce that particular umpire. We wrote it up on a whiteboard. We went back and we said, so what do we think? Is there anything we, anything else we'd like to add? And how do you think this will contribute to a really good performance? Um, and we just had a, another little bit of a roundtable conversation, reaffirmed the things that we said, reaffirm the things we would do we wouldn't do and how we'd be accountable to each other and i must say nate that whilst i was a bit apprehensive having to umpire with two very junior umpires i had some of the best time it was some of the most um, enjoyable umpiring that i've had uh, across the year and i think part and parcel was because we actually implemented some skills and, and a contract if you like up front and how we would form and operate as a team
0: wow um, and, Wow, uh, man! What a, what an incredible process of declaring your vulnerability, p- creating a safe place for people to talk about what they struggled with, and then moving to resourcefulness and problem solving. How are we going to find cues? How are we going to help each other? Refining it, but then finally getting clear about the reason we're doing this is that we want to work as a team and we have to do quality work out there, and that those Absolutely. are the non-negotiables. And uh, I heard that I heard uh, again third hand that. Um, those players really enjoyed working with you as well. And uh so thank you for sharing that story story. Another example about the difference between task focusing on our tasks and focusing on how we are with one another. Wonderful. Hmm. Um hmm. well it's uh these tools don't just apply in our professional lives. And I I resonated with the story you shared about how your daughter your daughter's learning to drive and And uh, today, actually, my daughter, I I rode with her. She drove the car, and we were on the highway for one of the first times on the Mm -hmm. freeway. And we were all nervous and anxious, and I was remembering every word you said, Chris, about how does a parent relate to a child in a situation like that. Would you be willing to share the story of how you changed the way you you related to your daughter and what that did?
1: Sure, sure. So a, a scary moment in any parent's life, Nate, is teaching their well what I now know is teaching their daughter or their child how to drive. And and I guess before I go to that story, I need to go back and I need to go back to when I taught my daughter how to, or my daughters, how to ride their bike. Bike riding came very easy to me. And if I think about the environment that we had when I was teaching them to ride their bike, it's fair to say that the girls might have felt that I was playing the role of persecutor and I certainly identify with that. So I certainly didn't want to reproduce that same environment again in teaching my daughters how to drive a vehicle because riding a bike and driving a vehicle are completely different, um, you know, and we can see how much carnage can happen if, you know, mm. learning to drive is not done quite effectively. So I knew that I needed to lift my game and undo some of that stuff that, you know, I'd done with, you know, teaching my daughters how to ride bikes. Um, so yeah, it wasn't long after I'd undertaken the, compassion uh, compassionate accountability training that, um, I was faced with my first real opportunity to apply the skills that I, that I'd learnt. um, uh, through through the compassionate accountability training and, and the and the cycle of openness, resourcefulness, and persistence. Um, and I knew that I you know I'd have to ensure that that impatient teacher you know wouldn't emerge, else I'd lose that opportunity to really teach my daughters to drive over a long time. So really, I felt like I had the old plate on. Um, as we were, as we were, mm. you know, learning how to drive, and I kept reminding myself, you know, show confidence in ability, and, and you know, maybe she'll be able to feel confident in herself. And, and things were progressing really well, and we started to, you know, j- just by using the brake and, you know, getting used to squeezing the brake, and eventually acceleration. And then we came to a t-intersection, t- and um, and Taylor approached it, you know, and I sensed some tension and, and uh, trepidation. And I could see that she was going to you know, turn too close to the curb and hit the curb, and she started to panic. So I gently you know, turned the steering wheel to avoid her from, from hitting a pole on the curb. And you know, I could sense that her heart rate was heart rate was increasing, her breath deepening, and she was quite shaken up by it. And, and she wanted to stop, and I knew that this was the moment that popped up, and my response would be critical around this. Um, and in the past, I probably showed some, you know, disappointment in the error, and, you know, but I, you know, I calmly asked Taylor to pull over and, and place the car in, in in park. And the first thing I said was, I checked in with her and said, you know, how are you feeling now? Right. Mm. I checked in with her feelings and, and, you know, she was already being very apologetic you know, claiming to be a terrible driver and, you know, and, and immediately I knew that, you know, she was victim, playing the victim role. She
0: um, sounds like she was expecting things to go like they had gone before.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the first things I sort of said to her was, you know, you've been driving for 20 minutes and, you know, you're a better driver than some people on the road, but you, you, you're spot on there, mate. That, um, And I knew that, you know, I, I could go down two paths here. I could either, you know, default back to either being the rescuer or, or the persecutor, or I could use my compassionate accountability skills. So I, I did start at opening and, and, and I, you know, I declared some vulnerability myself and said it was, you know, it was scary to learn something new, and you know, misca- mistakes seem to mount up. But mistakes are okay, you know, because they provide great learning opportunities. And I said to her, you know, your safety wasn't important just now, but it's always important to me. And I asked her to actually think about a time when you know she found something uh, difficult to learn that was quite new. And you know, she said she said a story about her playing a piano song and how you know she struggled to get through a particular uh, a particular uh, notes and it was really important for a production. And so I started to quiz her on how she actually navigated through that, and suggested that perhaps the processes weren't any different. And I said, there's you know, learning plates in the car for a reason. You know, she is learning, and a part of learning is making those mistakes, yeah. And and then from there, we sort of <coughs> Yeah, you know, we sort of then moved on to, well, how do you think, because we had, a, we had a, a safe dialogue and a safe environment, and I said, well, how do you think you can navigate navigate the corner next time? And almost immediately, you know, we went from sort of drama field, you know, through to safety into into productivity. And she said, well, maybe if I slow down a little bit and turn a little wider and avoid the gutter, you know, I can make that turn. And I said, well, that sounds great. Let's give it a try again and practice what you said. Um, and, of course, she nailed the next corner and the others. And, and since then, whenever we face similar sort of problems, we, we, we apply the same sort of principles around, you know, again, me not persecuting, being very open, understanding the, the, the reason for a mistake. But quite often she'll ask me, you know, what do I need to do here? And the first thing I'll ask her was, what do you think you need to do? Because I don't want to go solving her problems for her and telling her what she needs to do. Mm. And I've actually declared to her and I've said, Taylor, I could tell you what you need to do, but there's going to be a time when I'm not in the car with you and you're going to have to make decisions on your own. It's better now for you to, to actually learn, you know, what, the, what those outcomes and what those decision points are so that when you are on your own, you've made them before. If there's ever a point where you're not feeling comfortable or safe, we can always pull over. We can always not make that turn. We can continue to go straight ahead. And I always said to her, your safety is most important to me. Uh, And that's why, you know, it may, it may seem harsh that we're, that I'm not solving their problems for you, but it's important. And it's important that, you know, learn to solve your own problem.
0: So is Um, she willing to drive with
1: you? She'll often ask me, dad, can we go driving on the weekend? And to me, I mean, it's, it's a, for me, that's a great recommendation Uh um, and great validation Um, And it's really helped me, you know, especially in my relationships with both my girls. Um, I apply it with both my girls, you know, quite often. And that's not to say there aren't times when we need to be parents and firm-handed, but certainly the opportunities to practice, you know, the compassion and accountability cycle,
0: Mm.
1: you know, occur on a daily basis. And I thank you for that, actually.
0: Oh, well, I can't, I can't imagine any listener out there who also doesn't feel like, if they have children, their number one concern is that your children are safe. Uh, you want your children to be able to make independent decisions, and you want them to incorporate your values about what's important. And it sounds like what you've chosen with compassion and accountability is accomplishing all three of those in a lot more effective way than when you used to be critical or give advice or try to rescue them. Uh, and and the best part is you you get to in, in continue to build a closer relationship with your children. What a wonderful story!
1: And, and that's the key thing I think, Nate. There, the relationships that you have with your kids, mm. um, and it's certainly you know provided a much stronger grounding for our relationship, yeah. especially in learning
0: environments because yeah. we are teachers
1: essentially, I believe.
0: Well, you mentioned innovation. You said that you had some ideas about how this could apply in your innovation work. Uh, your 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 other full-time job would you care to share sure sure um
1: and look i was i was particularly interested to read about it in your book as well um but as i you know your book um conflict without casualties i, I know you did reference um this as an innovation process and that resonated very strong with me um as a, uh, a design thinker um we we often talk about one of the fundamentals and principles of design thinking which is an innovation process is being very empathetic and putting yourself in the shoes of the person or the people or the, the, the group that you're actually designing something for, so empathy is a, a critical component in innovation, and especially in teams. So that mindset around being very open is critical. The yeah. second part of the cycle is around being resourceful and and generating and coming up with ideas. What's innovation about? Innovation is about coming up with you know you know saleable and, and ideas that you want to pursue and progress. Um, so, again, it's, 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 it fits quite neatly into the innovation cycle. And then there's, there's, it's great to have, you know, many ideas, but unless you can actually execute on the ideas and actually do the ideas, well, it's just another idea. And I think that the accountability component around the compassion cycle is the piece that says, well, we're going to do what we said we're going to do and we're going to mm-hmm. implement whatever that change is. So I see, I see it as a, as a really great supplementing tool for innovation um, and a very simple tool. And the thing I love about these skills is that you don't need to be a, a rocket science to actually implement them. They're skills that can be easily practiced um, in, in in most situations. In fact, all situations. I've demonstrated in both you know personal, professional, and sporting scenarios. So in an innovation cycle, I see it playing a very strong role, and I think it's and i think it's a competitive advantage to teams that want to use or want to think about innovation in a different context um, to look at it from you know a people point of view as well but not just from a solution
0: or product point of view i think it's really powerful yes wow thank you and it's true I, one of the things i appreciate you sharing is one of the things we hear a lot from our clients is that that as profound and powerful as these tools are they're not rocket science they are they they are applicable they're they're easy to understand and they may be hard to implement uh it takes openness and it takes a lot of uh persistence to get good at them but they certainly we've designed something that's certainly meant to affect the real issues of your life and not just remain in your head like a bunch of theory so i really appreciate you sharing those stories
1: well it's like any skill nate if you don't practice the skill how can you become proficient in it and i see this is no different so quite often I'll, I'll look to practice my compassionate pe- accountability skills in different scenarios and walks of life, whether it's me writing an email to someone, whether it's me responding to uh, a coaching question uh, in, in a football context, whether it's on field, whether it's in a work life situation. I think that you know, and if you don't practice the skills, you're going to lose them. So the opportunity to practice them is really important.
0: Well, I want to I want to underscore that message for everyone out there. Whether you ever come get training from us, or whether you're getting training somewhere else, we can't incorporate these into our lives and generate the kinds of results that you get that you got unless we practice and unless we're willing to take the risk to give it a go. Uh, with that team of umpires, you said, "Hey, maybe maybe it could work here. Let's give it a try." And and it was vulnerable. Uh, it could have backfired. They could have thought you were crazy. Uh, a lot of things could have happened, but it, but it worked because you tried it. Um, we are, we are coming near the end of our time. And I, again, want to thank you for these wonderful heartfelt stories that you've shared. Is there anything else that you want to share about how healthy conflict and and compassion accountability has played a role in your life? Sorry, Nate, you just dropped out. Could you repeat that? No problem. Yeah. Uh, Can you hear me now? Yes. Sorry. Uh, I just wanted to ask if there were any other, any question you wish I would have asked or anything else you want to share about how these these tools have, have uh, become meaningful and useful in your life.
1: Um, certainly to go back and understand, you know, the roles that I play and my, my preference to probably, you know, become a bit of a rescuer. Um, and I've made a conscious decision to not off, offer unsolicited advice to people. Um, and so that, I I apply that both in football, when I see something that's happening, um, I don't try and solve everyone's problems for me. And the thing that I've found with that, Nate, is that I'm no longer carrying the burden that I used to carry when I'm actually trying to offer everyone unsolicited advice and then trying to monitor that and see when they do fall over or when they do trip up, so then I can actually say, oh, you tripped up. Not having that burden, you know as a cloud, as a grey cloud over me uh, has, has, you know, has been really uh, fulfilling for me and just allowed me to you know really focus on the things that really matter in, in, in my life and their my own behaviors and things like that. So I think that's, that's really helped me just in my own wellbeing, my own mental state, um, especially in sports. Um, and it's really turned the focus around from looking at others and looking at me and understanding how I impact, you know, how, how, you know how I project myself and how my behaviors impact my own performance yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, so yeah really being cognizant I guess of of that that ability to or that that preference to move to that sort of rescue of behavior and, and offering unsolicited advice to people and, and just picking and choosing how and when I'd actually um, you know really offer advice to people
0: Wow. Well, I I hope your listeners are as inspired as I am hearing Chris talk about how he's applying this in his life and the changes he's receiving. And I I want to give a shout out to to Paul Larkin. Uh, You know, he's the one that introduced you to this. He has been there for you and coached and mentored and helped you with this and has done a fabulous job. And... And again, I just want to, for everyone out there, if you, Chris is the kind of a person that we'd love to work with. If you're interested in, in improving how you communicate and how you do conflict, if you have areas in your life where relationships really matter and you see the value of focusing on the quality and the value of those relationships, and if you think that conflict could have enough, could actually have a creative potential, we'd love to work with you. And uh, then also, please know, if you get connected with us or Paul or anyone else uh, within Next Element, uh, we're going to encourage you to practice and practice and practice because folks like Chris don't get as good and as fit as he is without putting in the reps, and he's done it in all areas of his life. So again, Chris, thank you so much for your participation in this and for sharing your time uh, this morning uh, in Melbourne, Australia. Thank you,
1: Nate. It was a pleasure to be on your show, and, and, and thank you for the wonderful tools that you, you provide. I really do
0: appreciate it. Again, thank you everyone for tuning in to my podcast on Compassionate Accountability. If you're interested in pursuing a relationship with Next Element, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, I, I publish a blog weekly on applying these principles to leadership and life, and encourage you to listen to some of the other podcasts that I have uh, recorded. And if you have anybody that you think would be a good guest on my show, drop me a line. So hope you have a wonderful day and carry on with compassionate accountability.